Hey gang, this is Tom DJ. I'm recording this on Halloween, two days before the release of episode 44. The episode was 95% done, including the introductory montage, before Beehive, one of our biggest fans, gave us a special treat all our own. Namely, he's given us something Comic Geek Speak has, the Uncanny X-Cast has, even our West Coast brothers at Geek Savants have. A hip-hop theme song. Starting next episode, this will be our official theme, but I couldn't resist previewing it right now. If you like it, you can go to our Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards105.com. I've posted a link that will allow you to download a copy of your very own, and please be sure to let our man B-Hyphen know how awesomely cool this song is, because he deserves all the love we give him. And now, without further ado, allow me to world premiere B-Hyphen's Better in the Dark theme song. We all feel better. In the dark, we all feel better. In the dark, we all feel better. In the dark. I'm Derek Ferguson. And I'm Tom DJ. And we're back here again with another episode of Better in the Dark. Let me tell you about these two dudes from Brooklyn. You won't view movies the same way again. Every two weeks you get something new and hate it or love it, they break it down for you. Tom DJ and Derek Ferguson been writing for years, got respect from your peers. Watch these movies for our benefit, though. Watching Halloween like Tom rather spit. So from Marvel at the movies to the Bond series, almost two years, they bout to hit fiction. Episodes that is, don't get it twisted. And from the start, these two have been gifted. Tom Tom loves Kristen and Derek loves Cam. Tom hates heroes and Derek can't stand. We make some movies that don't need the name. Watch out studios, it won't be played. So give it up for T and give it up for D. Coolest guys from Brooklyn inside of Jay-Z. My name's B. Haven and it's time to start. Cause we all feel better, better, better in the dark. Hey, sincerely, Who is he? No idea. This chap's been following me all day today. Go watch that movie. God. You just killed James Bond. Good morning. My name's Bond. James Bond. Come inside. Ignore the strange stickiness of the carpet beneath your feet. Find the right seat, the one without the missing arm and the exposed springs. Pull the candy bar out of your inside coat pocket. Look at the color swirl as the canned music plays. Wait for the lights to go down. Listen for the telltale clacking of film being pulled through the gate. Relax. Watch. Because we all feel better, better in the dark. dark. This never happened to the other fellow. And here we are again. We're back, and we are stirred, not shaken. This is James Bond, America's finest. All right, I've been listening to that freaking song all day. You know what you really need? You really need a Scottish brogue to pull that off. (laughs) Not necessarily. That's only five films. A classic. Although we are leaving that brogue with this episode, at least for a while. Unfortunately. We almost move on to bigger and better things. And in one of the movies that we're going to be covering in this episode, we will see that Sean Connery did just that. Yes. This is, in case you haven't gathered, Tom DJ. And this is Derek Ferguson. And this is, yet again, episode four in the Better in the Dark series, Guilt Edge Bonds. We're taking a look at all of the James Bond movies in the year that they were Mm -hmm. made in in sequence. What we're going to be covering this episode is On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is notable as being the first movie in the series to star somebody other than Sean Connery. And, of course, 
John Connery's return and Hello, I Must Be Going moment. Right, Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds Are Forever in 1971, right. which is significant for both of us. It was the first Bond movie we saw in the theaters. Well, a lot of people, well, we'll get into that later, right. but I'll just say briefly. That was the first James Bond movie I ever saw mm-hmm. in the movie theater, and I saw it with my father. Well, and I saw it with my, my natural father as well. Yes, that's a standout for me. Right. So we're going to go... Because r- this is seeing a really interesting period in the series, and we've got two, well, you think two excellent films. I think one excellent film and... Well, not so much. Well, first, let's give the people a little bit of background. The year is... Uh, The year is 1968, I think. And the James Bond Bond series is white hot. Sean Connery, he's like the number one star in the world at this time. And he chooses in 1968, on the set of You Only Live Twice, to announce to the press that this is going to be his last Bond film. Which naturally threw the broccolis for mm-hmm. a loop because reportedly they didn't have any idea that this yeah, was coming. They, they thought know. that them and Sean are going to run the gravy train into the ground. And it well, was a good gravy train because yeah. each Bond movie made more money than the last. So the first thing they had to do was find a new James Bond. This began the first of the great Bond hunts, which we will see a couple of times throughout this series. Some of the people that were named, they went back to David Niven, who mm-hmm. was originally picked for as far back as Dr. No. Right. Roger Moore, they approached him. For another future Bond was auditioned. Mm-hmm. Young 22-year-old Timothy Dalton. And both he and Roger Moore, they both passed as yeah. they both felt they were too young for the role at that time. But yeah, there was like a massive search all over the world for all these actors. And another person who had been briefly considered was a Australian actor who was living in England at the time by the name of George Lazenby, who was perhaps best known for a series of chocolate commercials. Lazenby apparently decided he wanted this role really, really, really badly. Who wouldn't want it? I mean, it's James Bond. It's the hottest film series in in the world. What we're about to tell you is apocryphal. It's what... Lazenby has told us, so we don't know of how true all this is or not. Lazenby finds out where Sean Connery's tailor is, goes to the tailor and says, I want one of those suits that you gave Sean Connery for James Bond. Okay. The tailor said, well, it would take several weeks, but we happen to have one of the suits that we've made for a production that they sent back. We can give it that to you. Okay. So he bought that. Then he goes to hair cutter that Connery used in the city. Brought a picture of Sean Connery just like... He wants his hair cut that same way. Many housewives do. Supposedly, also in the shop that day, although he did not know it at the time, was Harry Saltzman. Later on, he goes in to Eon Studios Productions, kind of bulls his way past the secretary, stands in the doorway of a Saltzman's office. And he's got like a really thick... I'll show you an accent. I'll see accent, yeah. Yeah. I hear you're looking for uh, James Bond. You found him. He pulled with Sean Young. Before Sean Young was even born. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember when she was yep. trying to have a Catwoman and mm-hmm. she showed up in full costume? Well, they actually did give this guy a screen test. That What sold them on him supposedly was a choreographed fight scene he did with a Russian wrestler by the name of Yuri Buryanko. Salzman and Bracoli felt that he really sold the punches in the fight. According to Lazenby, actually hit Burienko pretty hard. Well, you know, the problem with Lazenby is that yeah. he's told so many stories over the years. Yeah. He, uh, That's why we say take yeah. all this with a grain of salt. Right, because he goes back and forth. One time he'll tell you he was fired from the series, then he'll go back mm-hmm. a couple of days later and tell you, well, he quit. Or, it's really hard. And there are also other reports that said that they didn't want him back. It, which it, It's funny because you and I are both fans of this film, mm-hmm. and we agree that he gives a really good performance for a first-timer. This is the movie that was like the red-headed stepchild of the Bond series mm-hmm. for the longest time. A lot of people hated this movie. Yeah. 
But they hated it for the wrong reason. They hated right. it because Sean Connery wasn't in it, not because of the story. You know how we talked in the first episode about From Russia With Love being extremely close to the, the book. This is the book. It is. Pretty much chapter and verse. I would go so far as to say there's 90% of mm-hmm. the which is rare for a book-to-film adaptation. Right. Part of that is because of the person they have to direct this film. We talked in earlier episodes about the great editor Peter Hunt mm-hmm. and how he is not given a lot of credit for the language of the Bond films mm-hmm. and the way that he edited the films to make them more exciting. He had been promised the opportunity to direct You Only Live Twice because he had decided he wanted to start directing. Right. He ended up not doing that film, but they eventually persuaded him to come back and do the editing on the agreement that he was going to do the next one, whatever the next one was going to be. And it happened to be Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And he right. said to Broccoli and Saltzman, where do we want to change anything? This is a great book has its stance. Mm-hmm. There's no reason really to change it. He really brought the series back. Now we're getting into the area where James Bond is actually skirting science fiction and straight out comic book elements, but he brought it back to being a tough action-adventure movie. What we're seeing in On Her Majesty's is the first of the retro reboots. Right. We'll see several of these as we go further into the series where Eon Productions decide to go all the way back to the beginning and downplay the wacky gadgets and the science fiction elements. The bizarre henchmen. The bizarre henchmen everything and just tell a good story. To bring it back to being what James Bond Mm. started out to be. A tough action adventure series. Right. That's exactly what we get. One of the things I like and you know we've talked about this about Lazenby one of the qualities he brings is he's got a rock-hard confidence about him. He is totally self-assured of who he is and where he is. Yeah. He hits the ground running, and he never looks back. Mm -hmm. It's like he knew somewhere that this is going to be my only shot to play Mm -hmm. Bond, so I better nail him right from the opening scenes, which is what he does as far as I'm concerned. And he's got that wonderful line at the beginning where he said, this never happened to the other guy, which is a wink at the audience. We know this isn't... Sean Connery, give me a chance and I'll deliver. Although that, of course, launched one of the greatest debates in Bond fandom, which mm-hmm. we'll get to, I guess, shortly. So, so casting, before we begin with the plot, I, this is another thing I think works for this film, is that Hunt and Broccoli and Saltzman realized that they had an unexperienced Bond, so they tried to surround them with experienced actors. They originally tried to cast Bridget Bardot mm, as Tracy, because as you know in the book, Tracy is a blonde. Right. When Bardot had declined the offer, they went with the great Diana Rigg. A great, great woman who we have praised in several past episodes. I think it's only fitting that Diana Rigg shows up in a Bond movie because Mm -hmm. she was in the other seminal spy series of the 60s, which is the Avengers. The Bond series and the Avengers series are pretty inextricably linked. Yeah. So many of the people who start out in the Avengers show up in the Bond films at one point. Exactly, and in yeah. fact, in the Ultimate Edition sets that mm-hmm. I own, the special documentaries that were done specifically for the set mm-hmm. are all narrated by Patrick McNeil. Patrick, Patrick, Patrick who Kinney. also shows up later on in James right. Bond series. Try not to think about that particular yeah, film just right. yet. Yeah, right. Well, we get to that one, folks. A year before, Rig had acted with a certain Vegas actor by the name of Telly Savalas. Yeah. That film called The Assassination Bureau. The Assassination Bureau. Which may have played some hand in why Savalas was tapped to play. Which is a movie you guys have heard me go on and on about before. If you haven't seen it, trust me on this one. If you Hmm. never trust me on anything else. Hey, I saw it based on your recommendation and I loved it. Yeah, Russ Anderson, you know, he said, oh man, thank you. It was a great movie. And I've had a couple other people email me and say, you know, how come I never heard of this movie? 
just rent the Assassination Bureau. Right. You'll love me for it. Let but yeah, they were in that movie together. Playing pretty much the same roles as they did in this yeah. one. <laughs> so let's get into the plot. Plotmeister, if you will. In this one, we got James Bond, George Lazenby, mm-hmm. on vacation presumably where he foils this girl from trying to commit suicide. suicide. He's yeah, driving the along the beach. And in the process, it jumped by three other guys, which mm-hmm. leads us into the first major fight scene of the movie, right. which I think they did just to show that this new James Bond can handle himself. And also that well. new James Bond is pretty damn brutal, because he kills oh. somebody right there in that first scene. Right there in the start. Rounds the guy in the surf. In the surf. Just- without a problem. Saves the girl as usual. Later on, he finds out that this is the Contessa Tracy DiVincenzo, who was played by Diana Rigg. He bails her out again because she's run up some gambling debts in the casino, and she repays him with a night of, shall we say, carnal pleasure. Right. He takes out his payment in trades. (laughs) To get to the heart of the movie, what happens is that James Bond is still looking for Blofeld, presumably from the events of the last movie. He only lived twice. They find out that Blofeld... MI6 can't find him. However... Tracy's father, Drago, is able to find him. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because Bond actually quits. M says, well, listen, you had a year to find this guy. You can't find him. Sooner or later, he'll show up. But in the meantime, mm. we need you to go back to work. And he drafts a resignation, which Money Penny changes right. to, you a know. request for right. leave. Which that, by the way, this is the only time we see James Bond's office. Good point. He goes in and... He's removing mementos of his past adventures right. from his desk. He's got Which is the, one of two callbacks to previous films. We should make mention of that title sequence. Oh, yeah. One which of the is best. one of the best title sequences. It's one of the best yeah. instrumental scores. They were originally planning on doing a full song. John Barry tried to try and then went to Peter Hutt. Look, there's no way I can do this unless I do it as a march. <laughs> Everybody agreed. So they decided to eventually go with this instrumental. This whole score is one of... Barry's best scores, period. I'm, I'm not a songwriter, but I can't imagine it'd be hard to put On Her Majesty's Secret Service as lyrics in a song. Right. So it was a very wise move of them to go with the instrumental. And it works very well during the action sequences, right. especially. The title sequence features a hourglass through which they pour scenes of Right, as the is coming episode. through, they're showing scenes from... Uh, Dr. No, oh, right. from Russia with Love, and You Only Live Twice, which I also think was a good way to remind people this is part of this the series. This is not a reboot. Bond goes on his own now, hunting for right. Goldfeld, because this is a personal thing with him. Now, it's going to get more personal as the movie goes on. He meets Tracy's father, Draco, who is mm-hmm. the head of the Union Course, which right. is a criminal organization so powerful that in Europe, even the Mafia doesn't mess with these guys. He actually offers Bond a million dollars to marry his daughter. Right. He pre- there's like one hard-ass scene in that where he's been abducted mm-hmm. by Draco's men, and he beats the crap out of them, and comes into the office with a throwing knife, just mm-hmm. ready to like, come on, I dare you, I dare you to make a move. Because presumably he thinks it's both yeah. those men that have right. you know, kidnapped because he has no idea mm-hmm. that this guy is Tracy's father. He pretty much tells Bond, you know, you're the only man... She's ever met that can really handle her. So I'll give you a million dollars to marry her. And Bond says, well, no, you don't need a million dollars. got enough money. I only marry your daughter if I love her. But if there's something you want to do for me, you can find <laughs> right. out where this guy is. Right. Now, MI6 has been looking for Blofeld for a year. They can't find mm-hmm. him. But Draco finds him in 48 right. hours. He's masquerading as a Italian count. Italian count who wants to prove his lineage so he can right. inherit, presumably, the estate and the mm-hmm. wealth and the right. castles. But he's, he runs like a health spa. Uh, 
health spa or allergies in this remote mountain fortress in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. He's got these 12 girls. Some of who go on to be fairly well-known actresses. Yeah, there's Joanna Lumley, Mm -hmm. who who becomes an Avengers alum. In the new Avengers. Although perhaps best known for Absolute Fabulous. Right. And And Catherine Schell, future wife of Martin Landau and uh, co-star with him in Space 1999. All of these girls are allergic to various things. There's one girl, she's allergic to chickens. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is kind of bad for her because she was raised on a no, chicken, chicken farm, farm and her parents expect her to inherit the business. And in fact, that person was played by Angela Scolar, who mm-hmm. showed up in the film we talked about in the last segment of this series, Casino Royale. Rather interesting because she was not, you would say, the most beautiful person in the world. But she was primarily a comedian, but she had a very distinctive voice, a very distinctive personality. And right. that's why she becomes kind of the main person of the, these 12 girls. Because Bond enters into a romance mm-hmm, with her right. during the course of the movie. And the way he gets into Bonefield's organization is a pretty novel way. He pretends to be somebody from the school of heraldry right. that investigates people's backgrounds mm-hmm. and lineages. Right. As they explain to Bonefield, well, we have to send somebody personally to verify your records and check out right. your bona fides. And it's in this sequence where Bond pretends to be Sir Hilary Bray that we find out a little bit about his family history, including his motto, which serves as the title for... The world of, is not enough. Right. When he gets up a pair of glasses, a kilt of all things, right. and all this stuff, and he pretends to be this Sir Hilary Bray. As it turns out later on in the movie, Blofeld tells him, well, it takes more than a pair of glasses. Right. Because, I, we know who you are, Mr. Right. Bond. That's one of the inconsistencies in this movie. If this is a direct sequel to You Only Live Twice, right. then they've met each other. Right. Even though they were played by different actors, but then when they meet, they pretend like, but at least Blofeld says, well, listen, I know who you are. You're James Bond. Bond has to make an escape from this mountaintop fortress. The first of a number of really amazing ski chains. We're about to mention another of the great unsung heroes of James Bond. A man by the name of Willie Bogner Jr., a former Olympic skier. He wanted to do a documentary to show people what it was like to participate in a downhill skiing event. Right. So he taught himself camera work. And supposedly when he applied for this job as the person to direct and oversee the shooting of the various ski chases and snow-based chases, he impressed Peter Hunt by shooting backwards on skis through his legs. Chew. Yeah, that would impress me so, yeah. And a lot of the best shots in this amazing ski chase where it looks like it's like point of view almost from the yeah. skier that's Willie Bogner himself there's like what about like three major three skiers? major he was responsible for the chase down the mountain mm-hmm. the cross country chase later on mm-hmm. and the bobsled chase the bobsled chase he had himself tied to a speeding bobsled Whew. This man had balls. And it's amazing because these guys weren't making a whole bunch of money back in these days. So they really, really loved what they were doing and Mm -hmm. they were really committed to it. And it pays off in those spectacular action sequences. So while all of this is going on, while we have the plot with Bond trying to get the goods on Blofeld, who, as it turns out, is actually brainwashing these girls. Because they've come from all over the world. And they have vials of some sort of... That they've been told is the cure for their allergy, but it's really... A horrible bioweapon. That they're going to use on the livestock mm-hmm. and the crop. Blofeld is basically up to his old tricks. He's trying to extort the world right. for money. Which, so by the way, this plot. film makes 
Blofeld, the first bioterrorist in motion picture yeah. history. Yeah, and we should mention. Now, I know that you like Donald Pleasance. But no, I know, no, I'm a Charles Gray fan, believe it or not. Charles Gray fan, I'm yeah. I'm a Charles Gray fan. For me, the perfect Blofeld was always telling some violence. Mm-hmm. Donald Pleasance never convinced me that this guy was running a worldwide organization of the scope. But I like the specter that's in this movie because it's a little bit more scaled down. Just It's just basically a bunch of guys in a chalet. And Blofeld does most of his dirty right. work. When Bond escapes, he's the first one to say, well, get your skis and let's go. Blonde, let's head him off at the Yeah, Blofeld and... <laughs> <laughs> his assistant Irma Blunt. Oh yeah, who is played by a former child actress from Sweden. Okay, this is her last film. While this is going on, we also get the subplot with Bond for the first time actually falling in love with a right. woman. He falls in love with Tracy because he's trying desperately to get away from Blofeld and his men, mm-hmm. and he's down in a Swiss village. And he just happens to come across Tracy. It's one of the great reveals because he's sitting there exhausted after this amazing fight in a barn full of bells. Right. So it's like the noisiest thing ever because they're like having this fight they're hitting each other they're hitting the bells and you just hear bong 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 and eventually he's exhausted he's tired he's scared he's sitting down and then somebody skates up and we see the slow pan upwards and it's Diana Rigg. It's a wonderful scene that really shows that Lazenby he had stuck with it and if he had a couple more movies because in those scenes he really looks like he's scared. He's been through this exhausting ski chase, this fight, and he's mm-hmm. in the village. He's stolen somebody's park and right. he's sitting down. This is one of the few times that we see where James Bond don't honestly don't know how he's going to get right. out of this situation. Like an angel, she skates up mm-hmm. and she helps him, which leads into another <laughs> chase. car chase. Which, uh, once again, here's another, like, I think this may have been a first as well. A stock car race on the ice of all places. For a movie that has like one chase after another, none of them are boring. No, and they're all unique in and of themselves. You see modern car chases, and for some reason they seem very generic, but all the chases in this movie seem very mm-hmm. fresh right. and, as you say, unique. They do shake their attackers, and they hole up in an old barn. That's right. where he proposes to her. Right. On New Year's Eve, as a matter of fact, New Year's Eve. And then the next day, Blofeld finds them again, which is another ski and chase. Which goes cross-country. And you're right, there is an avalanche. He starts the avalanche. Both Bond and Tracy are Which buried, is, but they capture Tracy. Right. The funny thing about the avalanche was Rocoli and Saltzman had intended to take advantage of a tradition that the Swiss Army basically mines the snowpack mm-hmm. and detonates it right. at a certain time to prevent the build up to the point where there are natural avalanches. Right. Yeah. They cause avalanches to prevent avalanches. Yeah, basically. <laughs> what happened, though, was the snow kind of did, did its own work for it, so they didn't have to ever set off the charges. Mm-hmm. So what they had to do was they had to do a lot of trickery, because what you see in the movie, some of it is a fake mini avalanche put together by the Ken Adams mm-hmm. Special Effects Department. Part of it is an artificial smaller avalanche they triggered. Mm-hmm. On site, and part of it is just optical effects. You can tell they got scenes where Tracy and Bond are turning mm-hmm. over and over, and you can pretty much tell that that's not real. It's just something about the way their bodies are positioned. Right. You can see their faces too clearly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tracy gets kidnapped by Blofeld, who inexplicably also falls in love with her himself. Right. Bond goes to uh, Draco for help. Right. He doesn't go for N16. And this says something about Bond at this point, because he's not interested in taking Blofeld alive. Right. He's not interested in having stand justice for his crimes. He just want to get rid of the guy. Because right. he knows who he's dealing with. Draco loads up a bunch of his men in a half dozen helicopters. Right. And they fly to the mountaintop fortress and they proceed to bomb the shit out of it. <laughs> Draco's men are running around. They're shooting up shit. Stuff is blowing up and Bond's throwing hand grenades. In the meantime, Tracy hasn't been waiting to be rescued. She's going to kill a couple of Blofeld's yep. men herself. And that leads us into the last great chase in the movie, which is 
The bobsled chase. The bobsled chase. chase. Blofeld, he's in a bobsled. Bond is in a bobsled. They're going like hell down the mountain. And at one point, Bond gets out of his bobsled and he winds up in blood. And both of them are fighting on the bobsled. Bond somehow knocks him up and he gets his neck caught in the branch of a tree. Exactly. Not every action sequence ended a winner. Then, Bond doesn't go back to check to make sure that he's dead. Which I think... If I had been after this guy this long and hated him that much, I pretty much want to make sure that he's dead. But if he was dead, we wouldn't have the kicker of an ending. Which features, by the way, we already talked about one person, this being their last film, the great Louis Armstrong. Ah, yeah. Who the, did the love theme for Honor Majesty's Secret Service all the time in the world. We have all... He had to record this in the hospital. The time. Because Armstrong was unfortunately very, very ill at the time. Oh, really? But he loved the song that Barry came up with, and they recorded his vocals in the hospital. Really? That's amazing, because it's a lovely song. Yeah. It really is. It is officially his last recorded song. That's one thing that you think you would never see in a James Bond movie is a romantic montage right. while a love song is playing in the back. But well, it works in this movie. Sequence, it works. We have to mention that sequence that you're referring to, mm-hmm. which happens earlier in the film at a party that's being thrown for Draco's other daughter. Mm-hmm. Features one of our favorite actresses who we went on about in the Vincent Price episode, our young friend Virginia North. Virginia North. She plays the other daughter. The other daughter, right. And it also features, by the way, granted, Dinah Rigg looks lovely throughout the film. Oh, yeah. But I have to say, if I have to choose my favorite outfit that she wears, mm-hmm. it's that Spanish-style bolero skirt. Yeah, the kind of gaucho yeah, bolero the gaucho kind of looking outfit. Thing. Yeah. Oh, man. That she wears, and she's got the riding crop. That's a wonderful outfit. She doesn't have her hair out of place. It's gorgeous in this movie, even in her final scene. Even though, supposedly, Lazy and B and her hated each other. That's what I heard. Now, granted, keep, once again, guys, a lot of this is apocryphal because it comes from the mouth of somebody who is unreliable, Mr. Mm. Lazenby. But supposedly she would eat the stinkiest, smelliest foods she could find before any kissing scene. Before any scene. kissing scene, yeah. Well, that's what I've heard. But Diana Rigg, she's too much of a professional to say right. anything like that. When asked, she just say, well, let's just say we didn't get along and just leave right. it at that. You know, classy lady. Yes, it does finally happen. James Bond gets married. Mm-hmm. Him and Tracy have a lavish ceremony. Q is there, M is there, yeah. Miss Moneypenny, who of course is crushed. Does she uh, catch the bouquet? No, she catches but his she hat. she catches the hat, that's She's right. Hat. Yeah, James, he does, James Bond throws does it. Throughout the Connery films, he's always found a way to throw his hat onto the hat rack. Right. But he always finds a different way to do it. And in this one, he throws the hat to... He throws that to Moneypenny, yeah. They're driving down the road. And it's just a lovely little scene, because I don't care how much they hated each other, they, they look and feel like a married couple. They really do. They're happy, they're laughing. They're, they're making plans. They're making plans for the future, how many kids they want. Yeah. Yeah. Bond stopped because the car's encrusted with yeah. flowers. Mm-hmm. To take some of the flowers they off. They stopped to take them off. A car roars by. There's a burst of machine gun fire. Fired by Emma Blunt. Emma Blunt. And we see that it's Bofell with a big ass neck yeah. brace. And he's driving the car. <laughs> and it roars off down the road. And Bond jumps in the car and he says, Oh, that was Bofell. And he notices that Tracy isn't saying anything. Yeah. And then he turns to look and, and sees the bullet hole. He said, she, She's dead. Bond is like emotionally boom. And he got that memorable line. The cop pulls up and, it's you know. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. We have all the time We've got the all world. the time in the world. The transition goes from the romantic theme into the Bond theme. But it gives you a few minutes to kind of let this sit yeah. in. Like, damn, she got killed. And we've never had a James Bond movie that ended on such a downer. Right. It's always ended with James Bond saves the world. He gets the girl. Well, I don't know. Right. is a pretty down moment as well. Yeah, but that's later on. That's much I later mean, on. Yeah, okay, up to this point, yeah, yeah I mean, we're it. talking about this is still the 60s. And in every movie, James Bond has ended, oh, he saves the world, he gets the girl, all is right again. Mm-hmm. This is the first one where his world has been 
destroyed. He's finally right. found happiness. He's finally found the one love of his life, and she's taken from him by his arch enemy. Maybe that was another contributing factor to why th- this movie and George Lazenby has been put down for so long. I don't think people want to see a James Bond that loses. Well, the report, and let's face it, he does lose in this. The reports on why this was Lazenby's final film, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, conflict. There is the theory that he was fired. There is evidence, because you can look at it in the newspaper at the time, that he was behaving like a total ass right after this film came out. He did refuse to do promotional dates in America. Right. Diana Rigg did all the promotional dates for the film. Lazenby's story these days is that he was being an ass. He wanted to expand as an actor and him a prima donna and walked off. We'll never know what really happened until time travel is invented. <laughs> and this has been one of the worst served the Bond films by television. Because you and I both remember the infamous TV cut that used to run. The two night. The two night on ABC. Which was narrated by Bond, was cut the shit out of. That version, I remember, it actually starts with the chase. Yeah, with the bobsled chase. The whole movie's told in flashback, right. and Bob is telling you how he got up to the bobsled. And it's just a bizarre way to see the movie. Yeah. I didn't actually see it in its original form until years later. Right. Yeah, it wasn't until there was a movie theater, I think it's now a tourist center, on 8th Avenue between 49th and 50th. It was a former porno theater, and some guy bought it and turned it into a revival house. His bread and butter for the longest time was he would do double features of the James Bond films. And I would go to all of them. So the first time I saw the actual uncut version of this was at that theater. It was definitely a big surprise. Yeah, ABC showed that butchered version for like years. Yeah. And I don't think it was like until years later that they actually showed the actual movie the right. way it was meant to be shown. Mm-hmm. That's when they cut out the two-night thing and they started running movies all in one night. Right. And then I think that's when they said, okay, we're well, going to show the longest Bond until we get to the Casino Royale. Right. Because it comes in at about two hours and 23 minutes. But it's never boring. No, it's not. It never lags. The acting in it is top-notch. And yeah, Lazenby, he's not that bad. And I, like I said earlier, I think people give this movie a bad rap because if you take it's account, not Sean Connery. Right. You if know. we take into account that this is his first performance ever outside of commercials. Yeah. He does really, really good. He's, he does a credible job. I firmly believe if he had had another couple of movies mm-hmm. To get up under his belt, he'd be more highly regarded as James right. Bond. Now, as it is, I don't have a problem with this movie. The only one that prevents this from being the best James Bond movie ever is that Sean Connery didn't play Bond. And I think if he had got a look at the script and saw it, he might have... talked to Peter Hunt and realized what Peter Hunt was playing. Yeah, was I believe he might have took the role. And if he had, whoa. Because you know. Hunt had, was very clear about the fact he wanted a more naturalistic Bond. Shows in the cinematography. Because mm-hmm. the cinematography is much more... Ambient lighting, much more natural lighting. Compare this to the one we're about to talk about, Diamonds Are Forever, mm-hmm. which is very harsh and very bright and very broad. And, and, and angular, right? Yeah. And all hard, sharp. Honor Majesty's is very soft and very mm-hmm. creative in its use of light and color mm-hmm. and theme. And Hunt was thinking about stuff like this. The fact that in many of Bond's scenes, the color purple is a major component because, of course, purple stands for royalty. Mm-hmm. Or how whenever Tracy's on, the, there's usually flowers of some sort mm. because you want to associate her with femininity. So he was thinking a lot about some of this stuff. Yeah, and you could tell because this movie, more than any other Bond movie that I can think of right at the mm. moment, really goes into the characterization of it so that by the time you get to the payoff of this movie, you're really interested in what's going to happen right. to these people. It's not just your typical supervillain wants to take over right. the world plot that we've come to explain. 
expect from a James Bond movie. These are real people that's got real motivations and got real issues at stake. It's a marvelous movie. I love it a lot. We should mention, though, before we leave it, that Lazenby did have one more opportunity oh, to yes, play James course. Bond, although he wasn't mentioned wasn't by official. name, but he drove uh, Aston Martin with the license plate like, with JB. the initial JB. In the year of Bond, which we will be getting to sometime soon, actually. Uh, this was in a made-for-TV movie. Yes. This was the same year that uh, Octopussy and Never Seen Ever Again Right. The Return of the Man from Uncle. With uh, Kuriaka, played by David McCallum, and Napoleon Solo, Hello. played by Robert Vaughn. Robert yeah. Vaughn. When they were brought back out of retirement, right. there was a scene in Las Vegas, of mm, all places, right. where George Lazenby, as JB, right. helps out Napoleon Solo. Exactly. It was a nice little cameo there that he did. Another interesting thing I want to point out, the film he was scheduled to do after this one, a little something known as Game of Death. Ah. Because he was another one of the many celebrity students of Bruce Lee. He did appear in a couple of Hong Kong films after Lee's death. Yeah, he did, Which yeah. is why I, I believe there's some credence to this, and that he was interested in the Hong Kong film industry. For whatever reason, Lazenby leaves after this one film. He leaves, and the Broccoli's and everybody concerned practically pull down their pants and yeah. bend over to Sean Connery. For, actually, not <laughs> yet. Because really? they did go through another great Bond search. Yep. And had signed a contract with one John Gavin. Oh, I know him. First American Bond, mm -hmm. but United Artists didn't like that choice. The head of United Artists flew to Scotland to tell Chari, you name it, we're giving yeah, it to you. Yeah, that's what I heard. That what they All did right. was that they pulled down their pants and bent over and said, right. Give it to us any way you want, but we need you to come right. back to save the franchise. And Connery, to his credit, instead of being a greed head, agreed for, like, what, a million dollars? I think he, I would have to double-check this to verify, but I do believe he's the first actor to ever get paid a million dollars for a role, which he probably donated hey, to charity. Yeah, pay me a million dollars, but make it payable to a charity that he started called the Scottish International Educational Trust. Okay. To aid underprivileged children in his home country. Which is classy as all hell. Which is classy, yeah. It proves that the man was as classy in real life as he portrayed mm -hmm. on the screen. I do believe that he was the first actor to get paid a million bucks up front for a uh, movie role. Sure, Connery. Now, there were some problems with the script, actually. There was a lot of problems. A lot of script. The original script, the Las Vegas setting was always a part of it. But the original script was to focus on the twin brother of Auric Goldfinger. Right, yeah. And that didn't last very long. Mm -hmm. Then came a second script, which introduced Blofeld and featured as the big climax a chase. Because back in the 70s, all the major casinos had a boat, and they would have a parade mm -hmm. through the false lake that was made by the Hoover Dam. So, like, if Caesar's Palace had, like, a Roman bar, so... They had written a sequence where Blofeld is trying to escape on a boat. <laughs> so Bond and Willard White press gang all the different uh, casinos into donating their boats to chase after them. Oh, my God. It sounded pretty bad anyway. Yeah, but this script did have a lot of Well, problems. this script yeah. is a train wreck. This is going to probably be the first major disagreement you and I have in the series. Well, not really. I'm going to admit it. Yes, this is my favorite of the Sean Connery movies for reasons I've already explained. Mm -hmm. I love this movie a lot, but I will be the first to tell you that the plot doesn't make a lick of sense after a while. It's like three different movies. You have to give up and just say, okay, just let me enjoy it for what's happening on the screen at the moment. There's the movie about the diamond smuggling. Right. 
There's the movie about Blofeld going underground, and there's a movie about the crazy diamond-powered laser and then thing it tur- from it, space. Right. It turns into your standard supervillain wants to take over the world, right. James Bond plot. It, it starts off, we have Sean Connery back again as James Bond. Right. Looking for Blofeld. And that's a pretty freaking brutal. brutal. Now, this is a tough and this is because okay, God Hamilton was brought back to direct this. The mm-hmm. guy who directed Goldfinger. And one of the things they wanted to play around with was the idea that, that when they first started doing the script, nobody knew who Bond was going to be. We don't actually see Sean Connery until about three or four minutes into the film. Because what we see first are these little montages of people... Of him beating the shit beating out of shit out of people. I mean, look, because since this is a direct sequel right. to one of Magic's... He's, he's, looking, for he's looking for Blofeld for revenge. He's mm-hmm. not playing around this time. He killed his wife, so he wants to kill Blofeld. And he just... Beats the hell out of this one guy says, I'm not going to ask you again. Where's Blowfield? He right. throws a guy through a wall. He... And when we finally do see Sean Connery, he's coming up to this hot brunette French girl. We're thinking, yeah. oh, okay, we've seen this the violence thing. Here's the sex. Uh, 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 uh. No. <laughs> he strangles her with he, her own bikini top. He, I said, wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know James Bond got to be pissed off if he's going to strangle a piece of tail. He tracks Blowfield down to uh, this weird headquarters. Underground somewhere. lair with bubbling hot yeah. Mud pits where Blofeld is undergoing plastic surgery to look like Charles Gray. Yeah, who takes over as Blofeld right. in this movie? We know this from the opening sequence when he kills what he thinks is Blofeld, but turns out it's a, a paid imposter. It's also making other Spectre agents become Blofeld as well. Yeah, th- that's one of the major plot points of this movie is that apparently Blofeld's got a bunch of doubles. Right. Which I guess could also, in a way, explain why he looks different in all the other movies, because right. these were duplicate Blofelds, and mm-hmm. maybe we've never seen the real Blofeld. Right. We don't know. James Bond throws him <laughs> after a fight scene in one of the... Mud pits. Yeah, when it takes a trowel where mm-hmm. more mud and just yeah. buries him in the mud until it's Obviously, he's dead. Smoking hot mud. That leads us into the title song sung by Shirley Bassey, Diamonds Up Out. And reportedly, they paid her a truckload of money. Could you Mm -hmm. come back and do the theme song? Of course, by this time, everybody had associated Shirley Bassey because of Goldfinger. Bond is assigned by M because now, presumably, since he's killed Blofeld... M says, well, now maybe now we can... Now time to get back to work. Now can we expect some good, honest work out of you? So Bond says, sure. So he's put on this diamond smuggling case. It's a pipeline that's coming from South Africa. Africa. And we actually follow the pipeline. Right. How diamonds... And also are... meet the major henchman of this film. Winton Kidd. Winton Kidd, played by the father of Crispin Glover, mm-hmm. Bruce Glover. Right. And the bassist for the Doobie Brothers and the Thelonious Monk Band mm-hmm. Putter Smith, two killers who it's pretty it's much very, uh, no, no, it's, it's not, pretty much obvious they both got sugar in their tank. So <laughs> so, so. Very distinct, just the way they. Yes, of course, Mister Kent. Of Mister Wint. Yeah, they've got very precise I mean, ways of speaking. And I love the way that they talked so much that there was a fan fiction series. Mm. Remember the Cyclops series I did for Marvel Revolution? Yeah, where we had the villains of Hellpire and Gravestone. Oh, okay, they were meant yeah. to be Wint and Kent because okay. you remember they always. Of course, Mr. Hellpot. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. They're very polite killers. Yes. Bond is following this pipeline, and it turns out that for some reason, this is, folks, this is one of the many things that goes on in this movie that's never explained. Right. Witten Kid are killing the people that right. are in, and they're, in, they're closing off the pipe. Well, they, they do seem to have some imagination by the way that they drop a scorpion down somebody else's shirt. That's the yeah. doctor who extracts the diamonds from, from the, the teeth of the, the workers right. that's in the mines. And then he gives him to the helicopter pilot. They take him from the doctor. They kill him with a scorpion. They drop down his back. And, and they blow, blow up the helicopter yeah. pilot. <laughs> they kill the little old lady. Mm-hmm. And Bond uh, has taken the identity of one of the couriers, Peter Frank. And this, by the way, is one of the 
few Bond films where there is no M office scene. Right. So they have to work in Money Penny somewhere else. She shows mm-hmm. up disguised as customs a customs agent. agent. Yeah. Customs agent. They tell Peter Franks, oh, well, you got a phone call in the office. And then Peter Franks is just gone. Presumably, they got him in the back room and beat the hell out of him because Bond takes the passport. Although he does show up a little bit later. And he goes on to meet Peter Franks' contact, who is one of the best Bond girls of the series, Miss Jill St. John. Who wasn't originally cast as Tiffany Case. She was cast as Plenty O'Toole. Mm. And Lana Wood was supposed to be playing Tiffany Case. However, Guy Hamilton felt more of a kinship with Jill St. John and proposed that the two actresses switch roles. And we gotta thank him for yes. directorial instincts in this one because I love her in this movie. She shows up and just in the first five minutes of her, she changes she her wig. <laughs> in her underwear and three different wigs. Woo! How can you not love that yeah. entrance? <laughs> and Bond is like going, oh, so what color are you? Yeah, he said, weren't you just a redhead? She shows up as a blonde goes into her bedroom, comes out as a brunette, and then comes back with her natural color. But she's got a pretty cool gadget in her bedroom that checks fingerprints yep. because she gives Bond a drink, mm-hmm. and then she takes a glass and says, well, let me get you some more ice. And she goes in there, and she's got a machine, and she obviously knows how to check for fingerprints. Mm-hmm. She sprays the stuff on there and puts it in front of the machine yep. and verifies that. And we say, well, how did they work that? And, of course, Q has given Bond fake right. <laughs> personal fingertips that look like Peter Frank's. But... Our man Peter Franks has escaped from the custody of MI6. One of the more famous sequences in the film, we get a knockdown drag-out fight in a glass elevator. The elevator fight. It's not up there with the Red Grant fight on the train, but it's in that same style because it's in an enclosed place, and neither Bond nor Franks can really Mm. get enough leverage to throw. Slamming, breaking through the panes of glass. Right, because there's not enough room for them to throw a real punch at each other, so they're forced to be grappling each other, and and it's a really brutal fight, and it ends, of course, with Franks getting killed, which leads to one of my favorite scenes in the movie. The guys there. He's, he's dead. carrying Bond's and ID. He drags him inside Tiffany Case's apartment and she said, Is he dead? And Bond says, I sincerely hope so. so. And we feel it and after then the she, fight. She checks out the ID. She's like, You just killed James Bond. And the look on John Connery's face, he said, Is that who he is? <laughs> yes. Now, when I saw that in the movie with my father, and that's one of the things I clearly remember, that line brought the house down. Everybody just yes. cracked the hell up. I think it's a combination of the look on his face. He said, well, it just goes to prove nobody's indestructible. She's got the diamonds. They're in this beautiful chandelier, and the chandelier is completely made of all these diamonds that's been smuggled out. How do they get them into America? They put them inside the body. Right. <laughs> and now we move to what is the site of the bulk of the film, mm-hmm. Las Vegas. The Las Vegas sequence. Which was still kind of developing at that time. Now, here's something interesting. Cubby Broccoli used to work for Howard Hughes. Oh, interesting. Back in the old days. Mm-hmm. And apparently, Mr. Hughes, even though he was a psychotic nut job who was storing his own urine somewhere, intervened a couple of times to make sure that their stay in Vegas was as smooth as possible. In fact, at one point in one of the hotels that he owns, they were having problems shooting something. The manager of the hotel gets a phone call saying, listen, you know who this is, right? Mm -hmm. Cubby Bercoli has permission to shoot anywhere in any of my hotels at any time that he wants. Yeah, because at this point, I do believe he owned about four or five hotels Mm -hmm. in Las Vegas. In fact... The final script of this film came mm-hmm. out of a dream that Broccoli had about Howard Hughes. Really? Where he dreamed that he was in one of Hughes' casinos and caught sight of him and called out to him. When Hughes turned around, it was somebody he didn't recognize. So that's where the whole idea behind the Willard White character and what happens to the Willard White character 
mm-hmm. came out of. Before we get to Willow the White, there's yeah. one thing I, I want to mention. There's a character, me and you have talked about this before. Mm-hmm. He's a minor background character that's shown up in like four or five James Bond uh, pictures. Yes. Whose name is Solo. He's one of the gangsters mm-hmm. that picks up Bond at the airport and later on in the movie throws plenty of tool out of the window. Right. But we've seen him as one of the gangsters in Goldfinger. Right. He's in this one. He, he shows dies. up again in The Man yeah. with the Golden Gun. Yeah. Which we'll talk about in the next episode. It's all the same character. People just think, oh yeah, well that's just the same guy, but he's playing. No. You know who else? It's supposed to be the same guy, the same character. He plays a gangster in this film. Who? A man that you and I both like very much. Sid Haig. Yes, yeah, Sid Hey, He's another one of the gangsters that picks up Bond at the airport right. yeah, and drives him to Dude. Slumber. Slumber, that's right, Slumber, Inc. They're the funeral directors where... No, because it's Shady Trees. Shady Tree is the comedian. Is the comedian, yes. Who is another link in the pipeline. Right. Who also ends up bumped off. But he's right. a comedian and not a very good one. Played by an actual comedian who used to warm up crowds for Dean Martin. Bond brings the body there. And presumably what they're going to do is that they're going to put the body in the furnace and they're going to burn it up. That's how they get the diamonds. Right back, which they do. However, it turns out that diamonds are fake, which is pretty good for Bond because since they think he's Peter Franks and he's part of Pipeline, when Kid tried to kill him by putting him in a coffin yep. and putting him in a crematorium. Right. And it's really one of the true cliffhangers of the James Bond that series. Me. That was a sequence that when I was a kid, when I saw this first with my natural father mm-hmm. at the Oasis on Fresh Pond Road, I eventually kind of convinced my dad to leave halfway through the film. This was one of the sequences that freaked me out, that made me want to leave. Yeah, this is a true cliffhanger, because you cannot see any way at all Bond right. is going to get out of this. He's in a locked coffin, he's in a crematorium, the damn thing is actually smoking, and then all of a sudden, the top is open and his shady tree say, you right. son of a bitch, bitch we're the real time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, James Bond said, well, you know, where's the money? Because as it turns out, they paid him off with counterfeit right. money. He gave them fake diamonds, so by now, you folks should see where this plot is going. Why would they give him counterfeit money? Why not just tell him, well, right. listen, we'll pay you later? Why did Bond give them fake diamonds? What's the rationale for a lot of the things that's going on? We don't know. And we never will. No, we never <laughs> will. But we keep on going on. We persevere. So now we get to another element of the movie where the reclusive billionaire Willard White, who, of course, as you mentioned, is based on how right. he used. Most of the film takes place in and around the White House. The White House, which is which his. is actually the Brands Hotel and Casino mm-hmm. in Las Vegas. So Bond finds out that somehow Willard White is involved in this whole diamond smuggling plot line. So he wants to know where the diamonds are going. Which leads him to a research base out right. in the desert. Satellite is being built. Mm-hmm. And that's where the diamonds is going because it's a project run by a Professor Metz. Right. Who is an expert in laser technology. Bond goes out there, which leads to another one of the movie's classic set pieces. Uh, where, Although for all the wrong reasons. The moon buggy chase. People always say that, but I noticed that they remember that from the movie. The moon buggy chase. it's so bad, man. It is a terrible, terrible scene. It's not that it's bad. But there's no reason for it. I do like how we have the incongruity. All of a sudden, we're on Earth and Bond is sneaking around. Yep. Then all of a sudden, we're on the moon, and you see Bond looking from behind yeah. one of the... <laughs> he's looking from behind one of the rocks. And it's a moon set. You know, right. presumably, they're training... Why Willard White is training astronauts is something that makes no sense. Tiffany Case picks him up because she's following him out there. red Mustang Mach Right. Which was a gift of the Ford Motor Company. Because Ford came to Eon Productions and said, if you feature this new Mustang that we're about to introduce in mm. your film, we will provide all the cars you want for this production. Cool. Free of charge. And there's something like about 80 cars in this film that get wrecked throughout the yeah, course of yeah. two hours. Mm. All the cop cars, all the mobsters' cars, they're all Fords. Oh, okay. That leads to 
the infamous Las Vegas car chase right. scene. Now, I love this car chase scene, but there are two things for it that spoil it for me. Right. For one thing, couldn't they have cleared the crowds off the street to have yeah. people stand, and they're yeah. obviously watching the car chase. Remember, this is 1970 before Vegas became Vegas! Uh-huh. There are a couple of, like, Circus Circus. Circus Circus had just opened. Okay. When this film was being made. Mm-hmm. So, of course, a lot of people were anxious to have, sure, James Bond production, come. We'll yeah, do it. yeah. Come and they did rope off the streets of downtown Las Vegas for three nights to do the shooting, but they couldn't get rid of the crowds. Every time they cleared them, the crowds just kept coming yeah, back. Yeah, because you have the packed streets with people, and you can see someone with their arms folded, yeah. calmly watching a car being chased by eight police cars, but still, it's a thrilling chase until we get to the part where everybody says, oh, that's the coolest part of the thing. Well, it's ridiculous. No, it's ridiculous because Bond is going down a street. There's an alley. There's not enough room for him to go through. So what does he do? He rolls up on a ramp, right. a ramp, yep. and he tilts up the car on the two right wheels to slide through this narrow gap, which I don't have a problem with. But then halfway through the alley, the car inexplicably turns this yeah. way, and when it comes out, it's on the two left wheel, which kind of spoils the whole stunt for me. Well, because part of it is because that whole sequence was shot in three different places. The exit was shot on location Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. The entrance was shot in Universal Studios. And the middle sequence was shot in Pinewood. If you look at that, you see that the car actually tips from one yep. side to the If the alleyway is that narrow, how the hell does the car tip from one side? They never explain it. I thought it was cool when I first saw it. But then when I got a little bit older and looked at it, I said, wait well, a it's minute. It's not like, for example, in the film we're about to talk about in the next segment, Live and Let Die, where you have that oh. amazing somersault across the water, the corkscrew trick. That's Golden Gun. Man with the Golden Gun. When he jumps over the river and the car does the barrel roll. Well, we're going to talk about it anyway. We'll get to it, folks. The promised Land is over there, folks. Just stay with us and we'll get there. Bonnie loses the cops and he decides to pay a visit to Willard White in right. the White House. Which leads to a pretty nifty sequence where he rappels on the outside of the building mm-hmm. and stands on top of the private elevator right. and goes up to Willard White's penthouse office where we find out that it's actually blow. Yeah, it's actually he's like, well, who's going to notice that he's gone? It's not like anyone sees him. He said, well, nobody's seen the man in 10, 15 years. Who notices a man who's missing who right. nobody ever sees? This is where we learn that Blofeld has plenty of duplicates because Bond kills one and two more promptly show up. And he finds out who the real one is, he thinks, by kicking one of the cats so the cat goes immediately to its master. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of duplicate cats there. (laughs) (laughs) Which only goes to show you that Blofeld is flaking. (laughs) This is probably the only thing I like about the Charles Gray performance. Now it throws an element of doubt. Have we ever seen the real Blofeld? He's sitting someplace on his beach in the Bahamas laughing his ass off while his duplicates are running around. It turns out that Blofeld is also behind the diamond smuggling operation because for some reason he needs diamonds to amplify and power his laser satellite, which he's been using Willard White's money to build. Right. Are you getting all of this, folks? Oh, Oh, God. I'm sorry. This is a a freaking stupid film. Bond learns where the real Willard White is being held. While this is all going on, him and Leiter decide to liberate Willard White. Blofeld kidnaps Tiffany Case in probably one of the lowest points for this grand villain of the screen. Mm-hmm. He dresses up in like Princess Margaret, mm-hmm. of all things. So there's Charles Gray in full lipstick and a wig and a little pill hat stealing Tiffany Case from the floor of the Grand's Casino. But even before that, when kids know you love them, I'm sorry, these guys are not very good at their job. Well, let's be honest, most henchmen 
henchman characters in Bond films aren't good at their job, or there wouldn't be a movie. Blofeld manages to knock out James Bond. He puts him in this elevator, and the gas comes out. Yeah. And Winton Kid takes James Bond. Now, why for oh. some reason they take him way the hell out in the desert, still alive, put him in a pipe. It's some kind of pipeline that's yeah. being built out in the desert. And they put him in the pipe, and the pipe is lowered in the ground when the workmen come the next yeah. day. And they bury the pipe, and then they cover it over. Why would you go through all of this to kill somebody instead right. of just killing them when you were in the elevator in a secluded place? It right. makes no sense at all. Blofeld kidnaps Tiffany Case and they go out to an oil rig. An oil rig. In the meantime, Bond and Felix Leiter go to rescue Willard White, who is being held captive by Bambi and Thumper, Bambi. who most people also remember yep. two acrobatic karate experts mm -hmm. who frankly kick Bond's ass. Yes. Until he really doesn't have a chance against them until they fall into the pool right. and then he holds their heads down. And, and we, this is another case where I contend that Bond cold-bloodedly kills somebody. What do you mean? We see Thumper, because they question Thumper. We never see Bambi again. Thumper is the black the girl. The black girl. Right, yes. yeah, because she's the Thank one that tells Bond. Yeah, because right. he's holding both their heads underwater. Yeah, you know, I never know. We never we see never Bambi. We never see Bambi again. My belief was always that Bambi succumbs to being drowned. Thumper talk first. Yes. <laughs> yes. That we should mention that. Willard White is played by Jimmy Dean, yes. who was a country western famous singer. Famous country western singer but and he, businessman. But he's more famous for... Jimmy Dean Sausages. Yeah, he became a sausage king. Mm -hmm. You may remember him from the commercials where he's hawking his And in fried. fact, this is interesting, was that when they approached him to play Willard White, mm -hmm. they had said, I don't know if you want to do any music. I said, no, I'll sign up and do this film on the explicit understanding that I'm not going to be singing. Because he didn't want to be seen as a singer. He wanted to be seen in this film as an actor. And it's very confusing at this point. Well, was Willard White part of Blofeld's thing? Mm -hmm. Was he really kidnapped? Was he just hiding out there? Right. That's really kind of left unclear, but it doesn't matter because he joins forces with Bond. And I think it's very interesting in this movie that Willow White and James Bond act more like friends than yeah. him and Felix Leiter, who's supposed to be Bond's best friend. But him and Willow White click together and they mm -hmm. start working together. Well, you know, the, the treatment of Leiter throughout this series is kind of... For shit. Because it's like... Let's be honest. It, it, you he's know. only been played by the same actor twice, which is uh, David Hedison, who appears in uh, Live and Let Die. Live and Let Die. And then in... Uh, One of the Dalton's Places, Places to, to Kill. Kill. It seems like whenever they cast an older actor, and this was an older actor, the Bond friendship is a little different, and it's the lighter becomes a little bit fussier. He treats lighter in this one like an annoying sidekick. Yeah. Jack Lord was a good Felix Leiter, yeah. who was almost as cool as Bond, yeah. which to me, if you read the books, well, Felix Leiter is more or less the American version He's of James Bond. He's a big larger-than-life guy in the book. Which is why him and Bond click, because mm -hmm. that's what he's supposed to be, the CIA version of James Bond. Right. But they figure out that Blofeld has retreated to this offshore oil rig outside of Baja, because right. Willard White says, well, I don't have any properties out in Baja. Bond because of that big map they has embedded in the table with all of his properties. It's in the floor. That's a yeah. Ken Adams set. It's right. a, one of those other beautiful you Ken Adams. You can always tell a Ken Adams set, by yeah. Things are not supposed to be where they're supposed right. to be. Right. It's a huge map of all of right. Willard White's properties all over the world that's in the floor. Bond goes out to the oil rig first, presumably to get Tiffany Kate. There's a bit of business. I've seen this movie a dozen times, folks, because and I that, still... That March cassette. I don't a, understand what the tape... The tape is supposed to be the control tape for the satellite, but it's disguised as the great marches of the world. Yeah. It keeps getting switched around, yeah. and nobody knows which exactly. one is the and real one. At one point, Bob uh, hides one, either the copy or the real one inside Tiffany's briefs. Yeah. Because she's wearing one of the greatest swimsuits ever. Oh, yeah. That red and purple swimsuit with the long sleeves. Mm -hmm. Inexplicably, it has the... You remember that? Yeah, it's got, yeah, it's got it's sleeves got down to our wrists. Yeah. But, man, is she smoking. Oh. But at the same time, here come Willard White 
and Felix Leiter with oh, get a bunch of right. helicopters to blow the hell out of the mm-hmm. oil rig. That leads to the fight between Bond fighting off Blofeld's troop because he escapes from where Blofeld has him at. And he's trying to get a hold of Tiffany Case. Blofeld is trying to escape in this one-man submarine, which is one of the weak points of this movie. Bond and Blofeld never have a confrontation. Right. Then he gets control of the crane that's supposed to be lowering the submarine, and he smashes it into the side of the control room. The laser satellite is going to blow up Washington, right. D.C. in five minutes. You know, Blofeld is almost on par with Cinema Lex Luthor in terms of one-track mind. With Luthor, it's like, I need land. I need, I need land. land, yeah. Blofeld, is, I'm going to hurt your cities if you don't give me money. If you don't give me money. Give me money. Wouldn't it make more sense to just develop this laser technology yeah. and then sell it to the United because States see, yeah, for, for see, a shitload of right. money? Because you see this satellite, and you see it using its big, honking, diamond-powered laser, mm-hmm. melting a missile silo in Russia, in Russia, yeah. incinerating a bunch of Chinese troops. Yeah. So it's a badass weapon. <laughs> yeah. Bullshit. So now he's going to blow up Washington D.C. Wouldn't it make more sense to just say, "Well, listen, I've developed this invincible laser weapon. Yeah. Give me money, and you can have it." Right. The trick, of course, would be Blofeld being a bad guy. He would sell it to all sides. Yeah, exactly. And now, you'll be the only one who has it. Now, to me, that's a plot that makes more sense. Blofeld is going to sell this to everybody. Okay, well, let's destroy it so nobody has it. Blofeld and Bond never really have a physical conversation because we never see Blofeld die. And in fact, even though it's never explicitly stated, we see him one more time in the series and perhaps the most embarrassing moment he's ever had. Oh, yeah. Way the most embarrassing. Even more embarrassing than dressing up like Princess Margaret. So Bond and Tiffany, they escape from the oil rig before it's blown sky high. And we see that at the end. Willard White, who of course owns Ocean Liner, Bond and Tiffany, they're going to go back to England and they're on the thing. And Willard White says, well listen, if you're having a good time, let me know and I'll tell the captain to sail around a few more times. And of course... When the kids show up, try in what has become a tradition, whatever bad guy, whatever henchman is left alive at the end makes one more stab at trying to kill Bond, which is unsuccessful. As Bond and Tiffany are standing looking at the moon, Tiffany says, I got a very important question to ask you, James. It's the most important question I'm ever going to ask. She said, well, what is it? She said, how the hell are we going to get those diamonds down from there? Which shows that the girl has her mind on her priorities. Mr. Wint ends up dying due to a nut shot. Which actually, it looks like he's enjoying it, if if you ask me. Yeah, because he got the bomb inside the cake. He's trying to strangle Bond with a chain, and Bond gets the chain somehow and just, woo! And he does, like, woo! Yeah, I mean, from the, he gets flipped over overboard. Yeah, from the look on his face, he's like he's getting more pleasure than pain out of it. That's how Diamonds Are Forever ends. And yes, it's a movie that's all over the place. Once we leave the diamond smuggling plot, you can forget about anything happening. I mean, that's that the makes thing sense. that really bothers me is that it is literally three different films. They never meet at all. Once we get to Slumber Eight, they get bored with the diamond smuggling. So then it's time to let's talk about Blofeld and Willard White, and, and then they have to figure out a reason for Willard White to have been kidnapped in the first place. Yeah, with this always smacks to me like a last minute addition to the script, mm-hmm. the whack job laser thing. Ooh, yeah, ooh. it's a plot that. That's all over the place. And unfortunately, the idea of a laser or some other sort of amplified energy emissions device being used by the villain keeps coming up again and again and again, and again in the Bond canon after. Well, just like the second favorite Bond plot is submarines or space stations or right. something being kidnapped by a third party to make the United States space, and right. England and Russia, all the major superpowers, go to war. Mm-hmm. That's something else that we see reoccur. They do love their laser-powered weapons. Right. Okay, so you don't rate Diamonds are Forever Well, let's high. start with uh, the first one we talked about today. Okay. I think we both are in agreement. Honor Majesties is a highly underrated film. Absolutely. It's an excellent film. 
it deserves a greater reputation than it has. I will go so far as to say, I'd rather watch this than how for the Roger Moore. Bond. Oh, yeah. I can't stand A View to a Kill. I can't watch that unless I'm forced oh, to do it. I can't stand Moonrake. I can't stand it. Even The Man with the Golden Gun has, interesting as I found it as a kid, I can't watch it. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked it when I first saw it when I was younger. As a matter of fact, I believe I was still in high school when yeah. it came out. But now, I can't watch it. Even for Christopher Lee, who looks like yeah. he's having a ball. Who is more interesting than James Bond, actually. Right. But we'll get to that well, later. Yeah, that's going to be next episode. I rate On a Magic Secret Service way above most of the Roger Moore. I'd even put it above most of the Pierce Brosnan movies. As you know, I feel that Brosnan starts out strong and then just... As they go on and on and on, you feel that they're way, way downhill. Not so much that it goes downhill, but that it's thrown downhill. And Diamonds Are Forever... No, I can't really recommend this. Okay. I can't. I would recommend it. That movie's got a soft spot in my heart, and I'm always going to watch it every time. Got it on VHS and DVD, and I watch it every chance I get. That's our opinions on it. Take it for what it's worth. And if you're a James Bond fan, you've probably seen seen these already anyway. Yeah, multiple times. There are people that I know, even if it's James Bond movies, they don't like, they still watch them anyway. Well, that's why I have the complete set. Because you know what? It's James Bond. Right. As much as I don't like the Roger Moore movies, there is still things in there that I can watch right. up and I can still like and appreciate. Even, God say, Moonraker. <laughs> oh, well, we'll be getting to that <coughs> soon enough because that's right. two episodes hence. That's true. Because next episode, we are getting into the next great era of Bond. Mm-hmm. When we introduce Roger Moore and begin the longest run of an actor as James Bond. And the one that most people are probably familiar with because, as we've said in private conversation, an entire generation grew up knowing only Roger Moore mm-hmm. as James Bond. They never knew Sean Connery. It's interesting that when you talk to people that grew up during the Roger Moore they've got a completely different take on the Bond right. character than, say, you and I do. It's an interesting era in the Bond history. Yes, so we're going to come back to Gilbert <coughs> Bond's... We will tackle Live and Let Die, one of the coolest theme songs of all the Bond films that are not done by Shirley Bassey. Oh, yes. Yeah. And not so much Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, God. I gotta sit through two hours of Merry Goodnight. Yeah, I'm afraid you do, my oh. friend. But don't worry, I'll sit through and it. And the little Filipino kick ass schoolgirls. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Uh, I guess it's time for the uh, administrative. Administrative. Dump. Okay, folks. If you want to send us an email to praise or hate or vodka or special gadgets, just send it to better in the dark at gmail.com. That's better the letter N the dark at gmail.com. You can also leave a comment on our Potomatic page, which is at better in the Or you can join our mailing list, which is movies.yahoo.com backslash group, backslash better in the dark. Any of these ways, you can get in touch with us, and we are the type of people who read everything that we do get. Everything. Everything. In fact, the episode we're about to record after we're done here was inspired partially by a discussion we had on the mailing list. Oh, didn't we want to mention something about the player? It's been brought to our attention that Potomatic went through a recent renovation. They upgraded their site and did some stuff, which, quite frankly, doesn't impress me much. But... Supposedly, there are some problems with the player. We have said this before on previous episodes. We highly recommend that you download the episodes as an MP3 file and play them through whatever player you prefer, whether it's an MP3 player or something like Windows Media. I'm not sure what it is. It is Potomatic's fault. Just keep trying. Okay. Okay? That's all we just wanted to make you aware of because people are telling us they're having problems and... 
It's no good us doing this. The automatic player has always been kind of hinky. Yeah. I've noticed myself. Well, I usually listen to it on Windows Media Player. And what I I do, as I've said before, I listen to them through an MP3 player. Because I figure that's how most people are experiencing them. And since you're the technical guy, you you would know better than I do how it sounds. But to my ear, over the Windows Media Player, it sounds good. Okay, then. So we're done for this one? We're done for this one. All right. We will meet you again when it's time to meet... The former saint, Mr. Roger Moore. Absolutely. Until that time, I'm Tom DJ. And I'm Derek Ferguson. And no matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter what sort of weird duo of homosexual assassins you may run across, (laughs) go Go see see that that movie. movie. (laughs) Good night. Good night. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Keelan Conley, Chris Johnson at the Amazing Spidercast, Michael Bailey at Views from the Long Box, and the members of the Better in the Dark Yahoo group at movies.groups.yahoo.com backslash group backslash Better in the Dark. Better in the Dark is not sure, but thinks it may have set the record for the most usages of the phrase, it makes no sense, with that last review. Previous episodes for the show can be downloaded from betterinthedark.podomatic.com. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, and pipe bombs to better the dark at gmail.com. That's better the letter N the dark at gmail.com. Interact with the hosts and the fans of this podcast at the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards105.com. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley. Better in the Dark is a conspiracy productions presentation. All material copyright Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. And until next time, please remember that fiends don't let fiends dress up like Princess Margaret. <laughs>